0: Welcome to the Sports & Torts Podcast, your go-to podcast for entertaining conversations on sports, law, and business. This podcast is powered by the Jay Stein Law Firm, a personal injury law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. And now, here is your host, Joshua Stein.
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Sports & Torts Party. My name is Joshua Stein, and I'm happy to bring you this newest episode. Remember, you can always find old episodes at sportsandtorts.com. You can follow us on different social media accounts. And I actually just started a TikTok account that my daughter isn't thrilled with me, but she is following and liking. So that's all all very good. Um, We have another great episode for you all today. Joining us is my friend Michael Goldberg. Michael is a lawyer here in Atlanta who handles personal injury cases. Michael dedicates 95% of his practice to representing individuals who are injured in truck wreck accidents. And he is without a doubt one of the leaders of our personal injury bar here in Atlanta from putting on continuing education seminars to consistently trying high value cases to a jury to getting people together at different sporting events. The dude does it all and he's helped so many of us and he's all over the place. So I'm very pumped to have him spend some time with us here today. Michael, my man, welcome.
0: Well, hey, thanks for having me on, and uh, especially thanks for getting me the Grey Goose, because that's what I drink, and I, and I enjoy it, and I'm glad you got it here.
1: We're enjoying Grey Goose. Cranberry with a lime um, is what we're adding with it. Uh, it's, d- Grey Goose is delicious. I mean, I, I drink, I'll drink One, Grey Goose, Tito's, but uh, Grey Goose has that, that sharpness to it, right?
0: You know, we actually had a blind taste test over at Chops, where we poured different vodka and... Believe it or not, Grey Goose won. And I knew they would,
1: so I felt pretty good about that. So you hear people talk about how the Kirkland, the Costco brand, is actually like Grey Goose. There's no chance of that, right?
0: Not only is there zero chance, that's blasphemy. That is (laughs) blasphemy. Never say that. Never say Kirkland around me. Only say Grey
1: Goose. I would agree with you. Um, I have no Kirkland... Uh, vodka in my house, nor will I ever. But you do hear that from time to time. Well,
0: I, I do. I actually hear from my mom and dad a lot. I hear it from uh, my brothers and sisters. They love Costco. They love Kirkland. I know disrespect to them.
1: But just give me the Grey Goose, give me the please. Gray goose. Go, go with what you even know.
0: If, even if it's the same thing, I just want the Grey Goose bottle at least.
1: It looks nice. It it's, it's visually appealing. So not only is, are we enjoying the drink, but I got a comment on the, on the shirt you're wearing, which is the classic superman georgia shirt well it's, it's not just the classic this is the shirt that won a national championship uh, i've worn this
0: shirt twice uh, this will be the third time i've worn it i won i wore it for the uh the sec championship which of course we lost but i knew it was a good shirt and it was going to come you, back you believed in the i shirt. believed in the shirt and so i went and wore this to the national championship in, uh, in indianapolis they won of course greatest game ever now, ironically, I did not wear it for the Oregon game because I didn't need it. Didn't need right? it. we didn't need it for the Oregon game. So, uh, but I will, I will bring it back out when it's
1: needed. You got, you got to save that for the right time. You were at the Oregon game. Oh, of course, I was at the uh, Oregon game, but not
0: in this shirt. Not yeah. in this shirt.
1: Your, your son came in, his buddies came in. That was an absolute thrashing. The environment in there was crazy, Georgia, yeah. right?
0: It, you know, it, it was nuts. I mean, and and again, you didn't really know what to expect. I mean, you know, Stetson Bennett's back. How good is he going to be? Are they still hungry? Uh, but man, they looked unbelievable, unbelievable.
1: The uh, the the Stetson Bennett, you know, doubters and critics, they kind of got quiet this week, didn't they? They did. And, uh, the
0: the funny part about it is, I went to high school with Stetson Bennett's mom. Did you really? I did. So so she she texted me uh, about halfway through the season last year, and she said, "Look, uh, we need to talk with somebody about doing an NIL deal with Stetson." And I said, "Sure, no problem." I said, "You better act really quickly because you know." If he starts losing, it's not going to be worth as much. You need to go ahead and get a deal in place. And she said, No, no, no. We're going to wait till after the national championship. And I go, Whoa, you know, that's, 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 that's some big kahunas. And of course, then when we lost the SEC championship, I was like, Oh my gosh, they've lost out on all this money. But as it turns out, the NIL deal he did, and I sent him to a, to a lawyer I know who does these kind of deals, uh, the amount they're making is about 10 times what he would have made had he done the deal when I told him to do it. <laughs>
1: So so that, that's crazy interesting. And I would go one step further and think the third quarter of the National Championship game, his stock was probably as low it could, as it could ever get.
0: Well, I mean, right? if, if, you could, if you could bet in game, yes, you could yeah. bet his stock in game, it would be the lowest at that point. And,
1: and then somehow, my goodness, bounces back in the fourth. And now there's that story that came out, million-dollar NIL deal, right?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no doubt about it. Um, and again, he—, he I was nervous for him i was nervous for the family because i knew he could make some good money doing an nil deal earlier uh but the problem was you know if, if once you make that deal you're stuck with it whereas if you wait and bet on yourself uh, and you come out on top it's worth you know 10 15 times more so they made the right call but for me you know i was a little scared for him. but uh it turned out great for them
1: Setson, a pretty cool kid
0: great kid my, my my son and my daughter have uh, I both spent time with him and his brothers and, and everybody else uh, just you know the good 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 people uh, you know it, it is the craziest thing that he's the one that led Georgia to the national championship I mean if you could have chosen anybody the least recruited person but really the most worthy in what he has actually attained
1: so they showed they showed, um, they showed his, his his career timeline going back from 2018. And all the steps, maybe 17, and all the different steps he's gone through from different string and JUCO and this, that, and the other. And now I read this week that some NFL teams have him on their on their radar. I mean, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, that's tough. We'll that's see. Tough. But you know, you look at him last week, and he was he was dynamic.
0: You know, I actually just uh, put a bet on him for the Heisman Did because you? you know it 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 just seems like if he can perform at this level and Georgia wins out. He's got a better shot at the Heisman, uh, maybe even than Bryce Young does.
1: Yeah, I saw his, his numbers jump from in the thousands, to so like 19 to 1 or 100 or something. Did you 20, get like, 20 to 1. 20 to 20 1 is what yeah. I got to so bet. All right, yeah. well, well, we'll be following to see if that money pays, pays off because if he wins the Heisman, that's good news for Georgia fans. Um, we could talk about that all day, but there's so much legal stuff I want to get to with you um, because you're a wealth of knowledge and information. But first, spend a minute, just for people that don't know you, introduce yourself, kind of where you're from and what you're doing.
0: Sure. You know, I I grew up in LaGrange, Georgia, a little small town. Uh, Went to uh, high school in Rockdale County, Conyers. From there, I played basketball at Mercer uh, in Macon for four years. Went to Georgia Law School in Athens. Uh, So never outside the state of Georgia. Came to Atlanta. uh, Started with a uh, big insurance defense firm, actually defending trucking companies. And after doing that for a while, uh, I realized that uh, we were paying a a lot of money out to uh, some lawyers that I was hoping I could be at least as good as and uh, switch sides and started suing the trucking companies. I've uh, been doing that uh, now for the last 20 or so years. Um, and that's pretty much what I, what I concentrate my practice on is cases against trucking companies. Uh, we handled, you know, uh, a, a number of the cases involving the Georgia Southern uh, nursing students who died on, on I-16. Uh, We've we also handled cases out that are Things other than trucking, but that's that's primarily what we focus on.
1: Yeah, you know, my career started on the defense side too. It's funny how many people take that kind of course, and and I'm, my experience, I learned a ton. Obviously, uh, I'm sure you do the same, and now that you use that to build your practice and be successful.
0: Yeah, you know, the defense side is a great proving ground. I mean, and they've got they've got a system set up to mentor people. So they take these young lawyers and they sort of put them through all the steps, teach them everything they need to know. And that gives you sort of the fundamentals to then go and out on your own and start your own firm. And so I, I never would have had I don't know the, the ability or the fundamentals to go out on my own had I started from that from the very beginning. Because you just have a big hole there. Uh, that's hard to feel otherwise. And, and, and that's kind of why I've helped sort of mentor a lot of the plaintiff's lawyers for the same reason that there's just a big hole if you don't get that defense lawyer background.
1: Yeah, and I mentioned mentoring. I don't know if I use that word I should have, but that's a big big deal to you. I mean, you, you take a lot of pride and responsibility in giving back to younger lawyers and all the different seminars you do and all the education that you put on. Like, why is that something that you feel so, you know, uh, strong about doing?
0: Well, there's a couple of things that go with it. I mean, first of all, the need is there. So I know the need is there. There's a lot of lawyers that come straight out of law school, start their own firm, and they have nobody to look to. So I've, I've tried to help with that as I've gotten older over time. The other thing is I, I love to you know, eat and drink, and I hate to miss a meal, and I love to have somebody there to, to do it with. So over time, I've met tons of people just by going to lunch, going to breakfast, grabbing a drink, uh, whatever. And a lot of them are younger lawyers that you know I'm trying to help out a little bit. Uh, but they're actually helping me out, giving me somebody to, to eat and drink with.
1: There's that book, Don't Ever Eat Lunch By Yourself. That, yeah, you know, that's and, true. and the concept is what you're just saying. And um, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, I mean, you do those breakfasts with chicken biscuits. People would come to him anyway, but then it's like, okay, chicken biscuit. Like, I'm going to eat breakfast anyway. Like, that's what I want to eat. You, so. you,
0: you need the hook. And food and drink is always a great hook. If it, you can't get them any other way, that's how you get them. Well, that's like this podcast. Exactly. Right? I
1: mean, the, one of the first questions I asked people is like, what do you want to eat? What do you want to drink? Oh, okay, I, I'm, I'm interested now. Hey, once you said Grey Goose, I was in. <laughs> you were So here. you had me at Grey Goose. You were here. You were here. Uh, you mentioned college basketball at Mercer. Um, I'm always interested in in the, the role that college athletics play in shaping folks in, in their professional career. I mean, in, in the law game, it it, it, it it you have an opponent, you're, you're going up against somebody in court or whatever. Do you think that playing sports at that level contributed to becoming a lawyer? Do you think it helps you now in your practice?
0: You know, I think playing sports helps you in everything in life. Uh, it gives you the idea of, you know, working with a team and uh, you know, just finding the fact that, that you don't always win, uh, going through the process of, working as hard as you can and still not coming out on top. Uh, so it's a great proving grounds for that in general and in everything in life. I will tell you, I was not a very good basketball player. Uh, I, I mean, I did play in college and everybody knows Mercer, now they beat Duke. Before that, nobody knew Mercer. Um, I probably averaged you know, three or four points a game in my senior year, uh, but coming from that background where I had a coach yell at me, you know, spit on you, everything else, To going to law school, law school seemed like a breeze. I mean, I was like, "Thank God, you know, let take me to a place where I'm at least I might not be as good an athlete, but I'm at least as good a student." Uh, And it and it it really made it where those things didn't bother me. There were people that uh, didn't want to go to Professor Centel's class because he was so hard, and he'd stand you up and make you ask questions and or answer questions. And I would be like, "Look, you know, that's nothing. I mean, I've had coaches that have." I mean, literally gotten in your face and
1: you're, they're spitting on you as they're yelling at you, and uh, that just doesn't seem like that, that hard. It toughens you up, right, and it makes you more regimented because you've got to deal with practices through the day. You still have your studies to go through, so it helps time management. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, everything about sports is, is a great training ground from youth sports all the way up. Now, your son is playing college football as well.
0: He is, he is. He's at, he's at Washington University in St. Louis. I'm actually going there this weekend to go watch him play his first game. He came down for the Georgia game. Uh, with two of his friends uh, that play
1: football with him. Uh, but I'm going up there to see him play this weekend. So that, that, that Goldberg stock is pretty strong, huh? Um, that that leads me to think, like, you got to be related to to Bill Goldberg, the wrestler, some way, shape, or form. Right? I always can say can, can, we, can I, we trace it back somewhere? I
0: always say I am, even though I'm not. But, you know, you know, he's Jewish also. Uh, and so that, that i got somewhere down the line. We have to be related. I mean, how many Goldbergs can there be out there? Although I will tell you, it's pretty interesting in New York, Goldberg's every other person. Here in Georgia, there's so only many. a few. Not so, so many, yeah.
1: especially not that they're good athletes <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> or, or professional wrestlers. Um, have you ever met him before? I mean, we gotta, we got to coordinate since we're So I, I,
0: I've met him a couple of times. I met him at Georgia when he was – this is a long time ago, obviously uh, – when he was playing football there at Georgia. Uh, and so then I, I thought, well, gosh, you know, there's a guy named Goldberg. He's yeah. going to be a football player. I had no idea he'd ever become a wrestler. And then after he became a wrestler, I'd have people stop me all the time. Are you related to him? Are you related to him? And I'd always say, I sure I am some down the line. And people
1: would, you know, start talking about Goldberg, Goldberg, Goldberg. I'd just start saying yes. Yeah, exactly. What, what you need what to mean? do, this just came to me, like at your next jury trial, we need some walk-up music for you. You need to, the, the entrance to Goldberg.
0: I will tell you, I've had, I have plenty of Goldberg weight belts. They, yeah. People have given me weight belts. They give me a little, you know, figurines of Goldberg. And I actually watched the uh, the Goldberg little documentary that they had about his uh, wrestling career recently. And
1: I was, I was like, man, he was a lot better than I thought he was. So I, I, I'm a wrestling guy. I mean, not as much anymore. I mean, I grew up one. Um, did you grow up into wrestling? Or- you know, it's funny.
0: I, so I realized that I knew all the wrestlers From the, you know, 90s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s and stuff. I don't know any of the current wrestlers. So that's what's crazy to me. But when I went back and looked at all these documentaries of, you know, obviously Hulk Hogan, uh, you know, The Undertaker. I mean, I knew all those guys. And so I remember I realized now I was watching a lot more wrestling than I realized.
1: I know my son got into it for a minute and I loved it. We did the pay-per-view, whatever it was, SummerSlam or King of the Ring. I don't know. I'm like, you can hop back into it like in a minute. I mean, if you watch Monday Night Raw one time. You'd be right back where you needed to be
0: it's unbelievable how exciting it is and how serious that the wrestlers take it i mean when you see these things behind the scenes it's nuts because you're like yeah they're going through all this stuff and you know they had one with randy macho man savage when he was you know going against uh, against uh steamboat and you know all the stuff they went through to put on this unbelievable wrestling event uh, and, and you know for all of us that are just watching it you don't really think that much about it but they're unbelievable
1: athletes I mean unbelievable athletes so fun so fun so we, back back to some law stuff if we can uh, I took us down that road by the way um, so you went to UJ Law school you said what was what was your decision to become a lawyer you know but people forgot good stories some not so good what was yours
0: So my, mine was from the very beginning when I was you know four or five years old my dad who's a doctor said you argue so much." <laughs> you are going to be a lawyer. And so it. I just knew it. I mean, like, I thought there was no other thing I could be but a lawyer. So, you know, I did political science in an undergraduate, and there's there nothing else that I could do. Now, ironically, my first, so not job, my first thing I did as an almost lawyer was my senior year, uh, everybody on the basketball team had stole cable. So what we did was we put the one cable line through the, through the uh, air convi- uh, conditioning ducts and we attached it to every TV and only one guy paid for cable, but 12 guys got it. There you go. And of course, what happens is uh, somebody's cable gets canceled for not paying their bill, who was, by the way, the one guy that just had to pay the bill. Come on, dude, the, cable we'll guy, the rest of us. The cable guy shows up, sees his cord going to the air conditioning vents, pulls it, knocks down all the TVs, realizes what's going on. And so we have to go through the, to the honor council uh, to, you know, state our cases of why we should not get kicked out of Mercer. Now, I didn't think they kicked the whole basketball team out, so I felt pretty good about it from that standpoint. And then I represented all of them. Guys, I, I got I, this. I, I was I got the this. talker. They, they said, yeah. "Look, you're the one." you They like, we know you're going to law school. You take you. you you're you the one that gets up there and talks. I like, alright all right, y'all be quiet. I'll talk through it. And I was able to cut a deal where all we had to do was to pay the cable that we'd stolen back. And so we did have to work to get that done. Ironically, I'm pretty sure anybody could have got that deal. However. For me, it was like I may I argue my case. They found for me or whatever. And, one for one. And it was and, great, and yeah. One for raises. one.
1: That's funny. When I when at Georgia, the fraternity I was in, we got in trouble for having, you know, drinks at a at a social event or a band party. We're like, of course, everybody does. That's but every other week in Georgia. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But this was the time where the IFC came and busted us. Right. Whatever, proving a point. And so everybody's looking around, like, all right, what are we going to do? Someone's got to represent us. And at that time, I'd already talked about going to law school. Like, all right, Josh, same thing. I don't, I don't remember exactly how successful I was. It was kind of a cut and dry kind of, kind of the situation. But, yeah, I mean, you get those early kind of uh, exposure to that kind of event, and it can, you know, kind of propel you. So. Yeah,
0: and, and, you know, it's a funny thing that just that that event came up. They needed somebody to do it. I was the one that did it. It made me feel like I knew what I was doing. However, I literally had no idea what I was doing. And the Honor Council, I'm pretty sure they had already made up their decision that that's what they were going to do anyway. Yeah. But I, I argued the case, everyone else patted me on the back and I, and I felt like I did something for the team. So
1: very good. So with your personality, you know, sitting at a desk doing some sort of transactional work was probably never anything that you considered to want to do.
0: You know, I, I, it, it never really crossed my mind. I mean, I knew that I wanted to go in, into, the, into the courtroom. Uh, I knew I wanted to be a trial lawyer. Uh, ironically, when I first started working, uh, doing insurance defense work, uh, I had one of the law partners come up to me and they said, uh, they said, uh, Michael, and of course they all call me Goldberg. They might call me Michael, but they're like, Goldberg, um, you know, you're a pretty smart guy. We want you to start doing insurance coverage opinions. Uh, and, and now, we know you want to be a trial lawyer, but trial lawyers are like plumbers. And insurance coverage defense, where you have to go in there and decide whether or not there's coverage under the insurance policy, that's like being a neurosurgeon. And why would you want to be a plumber when you could be a neurosurgeon? And I said, well... I said, I got, I got news for you. I've, I've never heard any good stories that start with, I was doing a coverage opinion and I denied <laughs> right, coverage. Right, right, They all start with, I was in trial. Was in Let trial. me tell you what happened. And so, you know, because of that, I was like, look, I, I'm going to be a trawler. I'm not going to be the guy that sits behind the desk.
1: Yeah, the, the, the coverage lawyers, they perform a great purpose. Uh, I did it a little bit too. And you're right. Like no, sto- no good stories really come out of it. it it's, um, I mean,
0: it's hard work. It's hard it's very work. educational work. It's very intellectual work, but it's not very fun work. It
1: takes a certain brain. They're very bright, very intelligent. Um, now, I mentioned that trucking specifically is what you're known for, what your firm's known for. 95% is what you've told me over the years in terms of the percentage of your practice. So number one is that, am I being am I accurate saying that? And number two, what was it and when was it that you're like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go after this particular type of case. This is gonna be my niche, is who I'm gonna be.
0: Yeah, no, you're right on, you're right on. I mean, it's about 95% of our cases are trucking cases or commercial vehicle cases. I mean, commercial vehicles can be vehicles that are you know, work vans, uh, straight trucks, uh, not the tractor trailers that we're used to in trucking situations. But those are about 95 percent of our cases um you know like i said i defended them for a while uh, and then after seeing some of the things that were going on i mean there were cases that were getting settled where you know people didn't know the truck driver was on drugs and never asked for it uh and i realized we were paying a really a lot of bad lawyers a lot of money and i said man you know these bad lawyers are getting them i can be at least as good as they are let me go out on my own and then i took all the knowledge that i had uh, from doing trucking cases on the defense side, and started prosecuting those for the plaintiffs, for the people that were injured, and so you know over time, I realized these were the kinds of cases I wanted. They were, frankly, the most profitable cases. Uh, there's the most insurance coverage insurance there. Coverage is never a problem. And, and and you know the injuries are usually usually um, bad injuries when you're when you're involved with you know an eighteen wheeler or, or a big vehicle. Um, and then on top of that, I found that as you got into these trucking cases, you would find that there were all these red flags that people had missed where the where the event could have been avoided uh, had they just looked into the driver's history, done all the things they were supposed to do. And that's kind of what led me to doing what all the is, trucking. One of the work.
1: things I've heard you talk a lot about and I always take to heart is that a lot of, a lot of lawyers focus on the event, the day of the wreck, and they just kind of stop. Like, guy ran the red light, he was speeding, that's it. But what you've always preached is you got to look back six months, twelve months, twenty-four months, whatever. Like what went wrong leading up to the event? The driving record didn't train him properly. Like that is a component of the commercial vehicle trucking cases that you don't get in just a regular car wreck case.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Every defense lawyer wants to make it about a split-second decision that had to be made under whatever circumstances we're facing the driver and so gosh they made the wrong call but we all make the wrong call every so often but if you back it up and you see that the really the wrong call was made you know a year before six months before two years before whenever the trucking company made these decisions suddenly the jury looks at that and says wait a minute this is a much bigger problem uh than just a split second decision and that that's what ends up you know getting you the big
1: verdicts. And, and to make sure people that are listening that aren't in our world know what we're talking about, we're comparing like the person, the Honda Accord that's going to Publix in their personal vehicle that just runs a red light, as opposed to the person that's working for one of these big companies we see on the road. Um, that's the cases that you're working on. These, these big truck, the big truck companies, they got tons of trucks on the road, employ hundreds of people, thousands of people, whatever. And so you're digging into that corporate structure, that corporate environment to find out what went wrong.
0: Yeah. And, and we especially on the cases that are are catastrophic where you have really bad injuries, almost, I would say 90% of the time, when you roll back the curtain and you see what was going on, you see all these red flags that were missed by the trucking company that that driver never should have been behind the wheel on that day of the accident. And if you take that driver out from behind the wheel, the accident never occurs. And on top of that, it's the trucking company's fault for not catching that not the individual driver who, who makes a mistake. I mean, if you put somebody bad behind the wheel, it's your fault for doing that, right. not the driver's fault. You knew he was a bad driver or you should have known that. And that's what happens in, in these cases with the big trucking companies versus obviously you have an individual driver. All you gotta do is have a driver's license to be able to,
1: to drive a regular vehicle. It's a much different scenario. So you mentioned the, the, the tragic case involving the nurses a couple years back, you handled that case. I don't know how much detail you can go into it but maybe use that as an example of when you get a case like that the type of investigation that you and your firm do to find out everything that's needed to set up you know trial or the result it is that you're looking to do.
0: Yeah, so we represented uh two or three of the families in the death cases and then we also represented one person that was injured in the accident, one person that was injured the worst. Um and immediately you have your experts out there trying to reconstruct what happened. In addition to that, you, there's all this data that's contained on the on the truck. And so you have to look into the data. There's called an ECM electronic control module that records what's going on. When do they hit the brakes? How fast are they driving? Those sorts of things. Uh, there's also other computer systems that are on the truck that you have to download and get that information and make sure they preserve all that. And then on top of that, what's, what's, what's huge now is the cell phone use. And so you have to make sure that the driver preserves his cell phone, and that that cell phone is looked at by a forensic person and downloads everything on it. Because
1: at least half of the cases we're seeing now have to deal with cell phone use. On the cell phones, on the iPads doing something. And timing is so critical. I mean, I remember when I was defending these these truck cases, the, the law firms basically agreed to be a 24-7 access. So look, right when the wreck happens... An expert in the law firm is like boots on the ground starting the investigation.
0: Oh, yeah. For, for the trucking company, they're there immediately. For I immediately. mean, they're always there
1: immediately. Right. And, and so for, 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 for you and for me, too, is representing, like, we're already a couple steps behind. So how do you combat that to to as quickly as you can get out there and do what you have to do?
0: Well, I mean, the key, obviously, is to be signed up as soon as you can. So once you have the client signed up, you're immediately putting the trucking company on notice to preserve all this data to the extent they haven't done so already, it's already been destroyed by that point, you're in trouble. But hopefully you're, you're able to catch them quick enough that they preserve the data. And then you get your experts out there as soon as they can to find any marks in the roadway that can be that can be photographed. They have drones now that go up and get as much as they can possibly get. Uh, but it's just important to get everybody out there as soon as you can get the letters out there to preserve the evidence as soon as you can. And then again, the cell phone stuff. I mean, we immediately send a letter Offering to buy the truck driver's cell phone and just preserve it. Hey, we'll give you a brand new cell phone. Just keep this cell phone so when the time comes, we can get the data. What's the usual response you
1: your offer to buy the cell phone?
0: You know, it, it, the problem is they know they have to preserve it. And so either they're going to allow us to buy it and they're, and they're going to keep it. They don't give it to us. They, the defense lawyer keeps it. Um, but a lot of times they let us do that and get them a new phone. Uh, or we send it to somebody that we all agree is a, is a good company. We have a lot of companies that we use in Atlanta area. Uh, and and elsewhere that we send it to them. They download the data, but don't produce it. They just save it. Uh, And then we can later on argue about what we get and what we don't get. But if you don't move quickly to get that done, cell phone disappears, truck driver throws his cell
1: phone away, lots of things occur. So yeah. And when you talk about the data, yeah, you know, there's there's oftentimes you've got the camera that's facing the cabin, so you're seeing what's going on in the cabin. You've got the camera that's facing out, so you can actually see the wreck happen. Yeah. And then you've got digital that's showing speed. So there's just wealth of information that is always going to be better than testimony, right?
0: Right. Yeah. So, so you you obviously want uh, one of the things you're going to want to preserve yeah. is the dash cam that's that may be in the truck. The bigger the truck company is, the more likely they are to have dash cams ironically, the dash cams for a lot of big companies used to look out and look in and see the truck driver, what they were doing, versus also what the truck driver was seeing out the windshield. Most of the big trucking companies have now taken out the dash cams that look inside the vehicle, because they don't want to see what their truck drivers doing. So they've realized that doesn't really that never helps them. All that could ever help them is looking out the windshield. So most of the times now we only get the looking out the windshield type dash cam. And again, you have to make sure that you put them on notice early enough that it's not overwritten, because it'll be overwritten if it's if not preserved. Within a time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my next my next question deals with, you know, in, in your in the space you see the same lawyers all the time on the defense side, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of the same companies from time to time, and, and and they see your firm name, they're like, oh crap, here we go again. But my my point is, the professionalism that you have to exhibit in those cases, knowing that you're gonna see these same people time and time again.
0: Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting that because we deal with the same lawyers on the defense side and they deal with, I'm assuming, a lot of the same lawyers on the plaintiff's side, um, you, you're able to call them up and say, hey, look, here's what's going on. Uh, you need to do this and that and they'll tell us what's going on from, the, from their side. And you have a pretty cordial relationship. I get along with almost every defense lawyer. I mean, I'll, I'll go have a drink with them, I'll go have lunch with them, uh, you know, from time to time, we'll go see a game together, um, and and it's they're you know they're good people. I mean, they're just doing the same job that we're doing from the other side. Uh, but if you're known, you want to be known as the person that people like to pay money to. You don't want to be known as the person that just dest- you know burns the bridges and destroys the uh, scorched earth and those sorts of things. And so, from our perspective, we always treat the defense lawyers with respect.
1: Yeah, and and when younger lawyers ask me um, questions like that. I, I I answer it as good as you just did, which is, it's just so important to to treat them good because we see them time and time again, you want to get along with them. Well, the job is hard enough as is, if you're fighting the whole time with the other lawyer, it makes it that much less enjoyable and you get better results and quicker for your clients. If you can, if you can do it the right way.
0: Yeah. And I once had a a lawyer that a very well-known lawyer, I'm not going to name him here, but, uh, uh, he's had multiple, multiple, multiple humongous verdicts. And he told me, he said, look, you know, never talk to the defense lawyers, just write letters, they can sense fear in your voice. And I said, man, I spend more time with defense lawyers than I do my law partners. I spend more time with defense lawyers than I do my family. If I can't talk to them and go have lunch with them and, you know, have a drink with them, it's gonna be a miserable life. And I don't want a miserable life. I want a life where, again, I can go in and enjoy what I'm doing. And you know, luckily, over the last 25 years, that's what I've done.
1: So I'll give I'll give a shout out to Andy Goldner, who who I share space with, who I worked with in, in the past, um, and he taught me a lot of those very same things. And y- he was, correct me if I'm wrong, your first associate, right? He, he or, or my, one mine of, or, and Joe's, Joe, or or he, one of, both, yeah, one of both of us, yeah. One of your first associates. So he he had to learn that from somewhere, and he learned it from you. So you know, I think that it's just great to see that trickle down, and now I'm sharing it with folks because it really truly is the way to go about it.
0: Yeah, I just I think it's it's. A process that you have to get to that point where you're comfortable knowing what you're doing as a lawyer and I think a lot what a lot of times what happens is if you get a younger lawyer that's scared that they're gonna do the wrong thing they think the thing to do is if I don't know what I'm doing let's just argue because if I'm arguing about everything I can't be wrong but that's that's incorrect so you're better off figuring out what it is you need to do uh, understand that and While doing that, still be respectful, nice, cordial, don't argue about things you don't need to argue about, and just argue about what really matters. Uh, And and that's, that's how the mentoring stuff helps. It helps people understand what's important
1: and what you need to argue about versus, hey, don't just argue to be arguing. The other side of it, in terms of working the case up and developing it, is that you try a lot of cases. I mean, as much as anybody in Atlanta, I think, with these types of cases. Um, and so that only happens if you, if you develop the case from day one the right way, right?
0: Yeah, but it's an interesting process. What I tell people is, I follow the same rule forever, which is this. I figure out what the case is worth, and again, what the case is worth is, is a big deal. It's different in different venues, it's different according to what the client's gone through. But I figure out what the case is worth. If they pay me something close to that, it gets settled. If they don't, I go try it. There's no third option, which is, you know, something where you force them to pay you more or you take less. This is what happens in this situation. And so because of that, I've tried a lot of cases because people wouldn't pay me. If they paid me, I would never try a case. I'd be happy to never try a case if they would just pay me what the cases were worth.
1: Right. And so your negotiation strategy is what you just said. And and I know that mediation, you do this, which is like, this is the number. This is kind of where we're at. And there's really nothing else to discuss other than you're going to pay it or you're not. Or like you said, get really, really close. Um, And I think that some lawyers are afraid to like expose themselves in that manner. They gotta follow the playbook, which is okay, I'm gonna go really, really high with my demand and you're gonna do your offer and then we're gonna to have to stair step down where you're just like, screw that, I'm just gonna get right to it. I mean, is that, is that right? It, it is, it's funny,
0: I actually was involved in a mediation recently uh, a few months ago where the, the the mediator sort of had to slow me down a little bit because I said, look, let me just give him the number. He's like, whoa, whoa, slow down, let's just play the game for a while. And so, you know, we, we go into it and I said, well, I'm gonna go and give a bracket. I'm gonna say, if you come to this number, I'll come to this number and sort of bracket it in which really gives the other side information more than anything else. And so, you know, we did that and the and the and the case ended up breaking down and the defense lawyers stormed out. And so I was like, well, "What happened?" you know, and the media goes, "Well, you know, it, it, it I think that the person just, you know, didn't um uh, thought you were hijacking the mediation, didn't like the way you were doing it and that sort of thing. And I said, well, it's a very simple process here. You know, here's the number, I give him the number and yeah. we'll see what happens. Uh, ironically, you know, the case ended up settling uh, within, a, within a couple of days of that. So it, it sometimes it doesn't work out at mediation. And it's a little bit longer than that, but it all worked out.
1: Yeah, sometimes uh, you know, the insurance company's got like kind of their set thought in their mind about how it's got to go. they got to write up the negotiation a certain way because someone above them is going to look at it. So they've got to play the game. And the mediators, they're getting paid by the hours. So they kind of want to do their thing too. We love mediators. Um, but your approach is great. So um, talking about trial, a quote that I've seen from you says, In a trial, there are two truths, the truth of whatever happened to my client and the truth as decided by 12 jurors with their verdict. My job as a lawyer is to make sure both those truths are the same.
0: That's a good way of saying it. You've seen that somewhere. Um, That's for you. you. I know. It is for me. It is is for me. It is for me. Uh, You know, the the thing about it is my client always comes to me and says, look, this is the truth. This is what happened. And I believe them. And, and they're always telling me what they see the truth as. The problem is the real truth, and when I say the real truth, the truth that's going to matter is what those 12 jurors come up with. And so a lot of times there's just a disconnect between the client's truth and what those 12 people come up with as the truth. And my job, obviously, is to make those as close as possible. And so there's things that I do in trying to understand what the client's truth is uh, to, to figure out the way that, that individual people are gonna look at this case, not like lawyers, because the biggest mistake we make as lawyers is acting like a lawyer, thinking like a lawyer. Lawyers don't decide cases. Regular people decide cases. And a lot of times you know, I end up pitching those cases to, when my, when my kids were younger, they're now 20 and 21, my oldest two, and I have a three year old, believe it or not. Uh, but when they were in the in the 10 to 11 range, I would pitch the cases to them because that's the perfect range. If I can explain it to them and they, I can get them to believe this truth, that the client is
1: telling me that's going to work for the jury. They become almost your focus group. They give you feedback on what is you need to hear, what works what doesn't work. So when, when you're preparing for a trial, and this is a big question I'm going to ask very shortly, like what is your approach? Like, What like what, what do you think about to get ready to go in and, and, and do the trial?
0: Um, you know, uh, focus, we use focus groups a ton. So I'm almost always focus group a case within a month before a trial. and. Believe it or not, I have never lost a case where we focus grouped it. Now, sometimes I didn't get to focus group them, I lost some of those cases. But the ones that we focus grouped, we always won. Uh, and the reason for that is that we got information from individual people about how they saw the case, not how we saw it, but how they saw the case. And that was very, very, very great information to take and then implement that into what we were going to do. Uh, but I have a, a sort of a standard way of, you know, I. Getting, putting the exhibits together a certain time period, looking at my witnesses, all those sorts of things. There's more technical type things. Um, but it, it, for a long time, before every single trial, I would watch the, mo- the movie The Verdict. Mm-hmm. It just gave me this idea of I was here for a purpose. And, you know, it's like going into battle. It's like, you know, uh, watching the the hype video for Georgia before the game. Get your I mean, mind right. It's all those things. And it, gets, it really just gets you focused. Now, after having seen the verdict after my first 20 or so trials, I stopped watching it before because it's just too much uh, because I knew it by by heart, Uh, but it is one of the greatest trial movies of all times. And it just gets you thinking about how do I empower the jury to do what I want them to do for my client.
1: Now, you still get nerves walking in the courtroom?
0: Always, always, always. You're you're, you're never not nervous. I mean, you should always be nervous going in there. And actually, you know, this break because of COVID when there were no trials, I'm sure the nerves will come back even, even stronger for the next one. Um, but you're always nervous a little bit, but it's a good nervous energy. And because I sort of have a playbook that I follow, as long as I'm following my playbook, uh, I'm, I know I'm ready for it. Uh, but it's going to be something where things happen at trial that you would never expect expect. and you just have to deal with them.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I've always heard and feel and read that once you stop having those nerves, means you stop caring.
0: You're exactly right. You don't care anymore. And that's not
1: a place that any of us want to be. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, in, in terms of when you look at the trial, um, depending on who you listen to, what book you read, they will tell you, well, this is the most important part, that's the most important part, focus on this. What do you say? Like, when you look at the trial, and what I mean is, like, the, the voir dire, opening statements, closing arguments, examinations, direct, like, what is your thought process on, on what you need to focus on?
0: You know, I, I again, I sort of I write it out and, and go, you know, what comes first in the trial, what comes second, that sort of thing. So board is what I want to do first and then, or jury charges board dire, and then opening. But in terms of what I believe is the most important part is the opening statement by far. The opening statement is the one thing that they say 75% of the people make up their mind in opening statement. And so an opening statement, you have to present your case in a way that makes sense to the individual people that are gonna be deciding it. Uh, to frame the question in a way that you know you can win that question, whatever your question is going to be, uh, and then present the case in a very interesting, persuasive way where the jury, after hearing you tell what happened in the case, automatically know how they're going to answer that question. And the rest is sort of just filling it in for them. So an opening statement, I always memorize it. I've got it written out word for word. I mean, I've you know, I, I've got a think called the Book of Judgments where I, I have the entry of judgment for every case I've ever had. So I know there's 55 to 60 of those. Um, for every single one, I memorize my opening statement word for word. And uh, I have a little outline to look at if I forgot where I was going or what I was saying. But I try to memorize each one of them because it's just that important.
1: Yeah, and, and I would add one thing that I, I feel is so important is establishing credibility with the jury right off the bat. So that what you tell them throughout the three days or a week or three months whatever it might be um, they're like okay we believe this guy he's established the credibility with us when he asks us at the end for x he's the one that's the expert on it and we're going to go with him
0: well you're exactly right about that and that's why you write it out and you memorize it word for word when i write it out sometimes i will have phrases put in there and as i'm as i'm writing it out i realize that's not 100 true and i'm going to change it and make it hundred percent true so there's nothing i say in opening statement i choose every word very carefully. There's nothing that I say, it's persuasive, but it's 100% true so that when it comes in the very end and closing argument, I can say everything I said to you in opening statement was 100% true. That's why you need to
1: believe me when I'm asking you for this money. Hundred percent. Do you try to limit it in time? Like not go too long? You want to keep their you want to respect their time? Everything is short. Everything about trial
0: is short. So you you, you want to be as efficient as you possibly can. Normally an opening statement I tell them I'm gonna be very efficient. I'm cutting out, you know, witnesses you don't need, documents you don't need to see. And so as a result of that, we're able to get this case to you much quicker. Uh and that, that's my role in it. And so the jury sees it that way because they hate wasting time. Do not want to waste anybody's time and so my opening statement usually is 15 to 20 minutes i mean again i try to sometimes you have to go a little bit longer if there's more complex issues involved but you want to keep it very short uh another thing that i do an opening statement that i've been doing for the last probably five to ten years is i go ahead and give them what i'm asking for an opening statement so they know in closing arguments what i what it is i'm going to ask for them.
1: yeah and, and a lot of folks have started doing that or not doing that but start prepping the jury in voir dire with the with the number yeah, the big number so that they can start hearing it now. Do you, yeah, do you and, take that approach also? You know, we,
0: we mention it in Vordire sometimes just to make sure. Um, but really the reason I'm doing it is people say, well, you're doing it to anchor. You give them a big number so it anchors them to the number. It's, it's really not that as much as it is putting my cards on the table. So what you're trying to do is portray a sense of honesty to the jury. I'm going to show you everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm going to take you everywhere you need to go right now an opening statement, so you know it, and it's all down on the table. And when at the end of the trial, if everything that you put on the table is true, then they're going to believe you and they're gonna do what you ask them to do. And so part of that is telling the number. If I don't believe in the number and I don't tell it to them, uh, or if I don't tell it to them, they may think I don't believe in the number, uh, that's the problem. And so for me, I wanna give them the number so that they know from the very beginning, I believe in this number, it's the right number. And also, I think a lot of jurors believe when you file the complaint, you
1: tell them the number, and so they're wondering why you didn't tell them the number in opening. Right. We call that the ask, right? Right. Like This is the ask of how much we want, and I hear judges talk about this all the time. They say the lawyers who get the big verdicts are the ones that have the conviction and the gumption to make the ask and believe in it, and it's authentic right it's not bs the ones that kind of tiptoe around it and don't believe themselves like they never convince the jury to believe it well the the way i usually look at it is
0: i i think about it in terms of what if it was my wife or my daughter or my son or my parents that had this injury how much would it be worth for them to have this injury and when i think about it that way suddenly the money i'm asking for doesn't even seem close to enough money but if you don't think about that that way and you say well this is what my client has. This is what my client's going through. You're missing the boat, because it could as well be your child, your mom, your dad, whoever. You need to look at, exactly, it's somebody. So you need to look at it that way and ask for it that way. And if you do that, They'll, they'll understand where you're coming from. And all of a sudden the numbers you're talking about don't seem that big.
1: And, and I think the other thing is being yourself, right? Like, like, like everybody everybody like goes and watches you or Jim Butler or Pete Law and like, I want to do what he does. It only works if it's you though, right? Like you've got to be the one to treat yourself however your style is, like that's what you got to do. And you got to learn your style over over experience and practice. Yeah,
0: no, I, I watched all those guys. So I, I would come watch Pete Law in trial. I watched Time Alone in trial a ton of times. I've seen Jim Butler in trial. Um, and with each one of them, there were things that I took that I liked the way they did it. And I made that part of how I do it, but I couldn't do it the same way they do it. I mean, Pete talks faster than anybody I know, Right. and he doesn't tell stories. He's just very much like, this is it, this is it, this is it, this is it. I love to tell stories. So while I chose some of the stuff that Pete did, I made it my own by making it into more of a storytelling type thing. Uh, you know, time alone, he would sit down and it would literally be like he was sitting with the jury in his living room. And they were talking about a case, and I would sit there going, "Where's the magic? I-, I don't understand. This just seems like a guy sitting there talking from his living room." And then I realized that was the magic—that he was able to do that, like it was a conversation in his living room. Well, that'd be like kind of
1: like what we're doing right now. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly, yeah. And so, so if you can if you can mimic kind of this conversation to a jury, they're gonna love it. I mean, isn't that the goal? It,
0: it is. It is. And the idea is that you're you're taking something that you know on its face maybe seems complex and explaining it to them in a very simple way so they can understand it and realize where you're coming from. And then they, they appreciate, not only they appreciate the, the straightforwardness, um, it, it allows them when you're asking for the money and you're explaining why this is the right number to go with you because you've been the one who's led them through this process and that you're open and honest with it about from the very beginning.
1: Now, you mentioned the uh, the Book of Judgments, which I've heard you talk about before, um, where you, you save every entry and put it in there and, and can go back. Yeah, there's um, a, there's, only,
0: there's only one missing. There's only one, So the very first trial I ever had uh, was from the defense side, uh, back when I was with the insurance defense firm. It was the first case I ever tried, and it was over a slip and fall on a grape at Kmart. I represented Kmart. And so we tried the case in front of Judge O'Kelly. Well, I tried it in front of O'Kelly. There's nobody else there. And I tried it because uh the partners there didn't realize i was trying it so i just went and tried it myself without asking them and afterwards because it was a good verdict it ended up being all right i don't think if it had been a bad verdict i've would been in trouble um but i went there and the and when i decided to start keeping these entries of judgment when i called back to the courthouse they said look it's all in archives it's gonna be 150 dollars to get a copy of this entry of judgment, and I said, "Well, I'll just remember this one. The rest, I, there were, you know, by then there were computers and stuff, so I have all the rest of them. But that's the only one that's missing." Oh out man,
1: we gotta, conference. we gotta get up a collection fund uh, to go get that for you. It, it, Come on, man! It, it, it's in Gainesville Federal Court in a basement somewhere. Okay, so. well, we'll we'll go to mission. Okay, so I want to, I want to say because over the years you've, you've 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 told me a lot about some of these different good war stories. They're always fun to talk about over drinks, right? Like that. That's what's. Oh, fun. of course, so, yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw out a couple keywords and then you take it and hopefully it reminds you of the case and tell the story. Sure. Sure. All right. So two different shoes,
0: two different shoes. All right. So this, that, that was a case that I tried up in Rome. And so I stayed in Rome up in a hotel there for the first three nights. Um, and, and on the fourth night, it was going to be closing argument. The fourth day it was gonna be closing argument. So after the third day of trial, I said, you know what? I'm going to go home tonight. I've been in a hotel for three days. It's just too much. I'll just I'll just drive there and come back, and so I I to do that, and I I drive down there, spend a the night at home, get to see my family, you know I'm like you know it's just great to be sleeping in your bed, but of course I got to get up at the crack of dawn to get back to Rome, and so you know I show up and and, just, and we're going straight into closing arguments. And as I'm looking at my papers, I look down and realize I have on two different shoes. And so <laughs> I said, "I said, oh man, you know. Same I color I, at least? I, or they're, the, f- they're, they're, they're close to the same color. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I'm thinking that, you know, it, I must do the best I can. And so I, I get up there and I said, well, should I stand really close to the jury so they can't see my feet or, you know, what should I do? So I try to stand behind a podium as much as I could. And I, and I remember afterwards, the, the jury came back and it was a great verdict for us. And I talked to the person and she goes, look, I got to tell you, you got on two different shoes. I was like, yeah, I... I know that. <laughs> realized that this morning. That. But the good news is they didn't hold it against it me. It humanizes you. It does. It right? helps. I mean, it helps. you know,
1: I guess one approach could have just been like, hey, look, guys, I'm, I'm, I've got two different shoes on, you know. But it just it goes to the point where it's like something is going to unexpectedly happen at trial every time. It's not oh, always your wardrobe. It's, it's, it's nice. But, but it's how you react to it, right? I mean, like... You can't let, let your mind go crazy that these people are now not listening to me. They're focusing on the fact that I'm the idiot wearing two different shoes.
0: Well, I mean, I had had one trial where uh, my son, who's now 20, at uh, the time was two. Uh, we had the original House of Pancakes on a Sunday, getting, and trial was going to start on Monday. Uh, he headbutted me so hard that he split my lip in half. And so I had to go into front of the jury and explain to them how I was not involved in a fight, that my son had done this. Jury loved they it. They loved it. Uh, I've, had, I've tried a couple of cases with broken arms uh, from playing basketball when I was playing pickup games a lot. Any,
1: any neck braces in no there? No neck braces, but, just... but a lot of
0: broken. I had one where, where I had a cast on my arm and my client looked perfectly fine. And I literally said in closing argument, I know y'all thought that I was the the claimant the, the and not the lawyer, Walking but I'm actually in. the lawyer. That's funny. Uh, and then I had one where I had uh, a terrible cough, of course, now with COVID, they wouldn't even let you try the case, but I had a terrible cough and jurors kept giving me cough drops during the trial. And I was like, I got these guys. They're giving me cough You're drops. they got to be with me. So
1: now what about um, having to ask the judge for advice during a trial? That's
0: right. <laughs> yeah. That, so uh, this is a, in front of uh, Joel, Joel Fryer, uh, who's now deceased. Uh, so I was, I don't know how many years out of, I was, maybe two or three years out of law school, and I was trying this case. Again, I probably had no, no business being in there, but I, I love trials, so I did everything I could to get in there. And so I'm, I'm against a lawyer from King and & Spalding. And so I ask a question, and uh, the King & Spalding lawyer uh, objects. The judge says, sustained. And so I said, try the question again. I said, uh, And I can't remember what the question is, but the King & uh, Spalding lawyer objects, and uh, the judge says, sustained. So I'm looking at the jury, and the jury's like looking at me, and I go, I don't know. You know so I I'll go, Judge, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Can you tell me what I'm doing wrong? And the judge says, come up here. And so I walk up to the judge, and the judge tells me, hey, you know, you got to say it this way. If you say it this way, it gets to come in. And so I walk back up, thank you, judge. And I walk back, and I ask the question and the King of Spotted Lawyer objects. And the judge goes, are you kidding me? I told I just him what to told say. told him what to do. Yeah, are you me?
1: Yeah, he said, overrule. <laughs> I go, thank you. Thank I bet you never asked so, that question the wrong way again. No, I
0: did not. You, know, you learn a lot that way. And it was one of those things where, again, it's easy to get flustered in trial. It's easy to think that things are supposed to go a perfect way. And if you take it with a little bit of levity and you say, hey, even if it doesn't go right, judges, they actually will help you out. I mean, go talk to them. They will help you out if you, if you get into a bind. Uh, and just approach them and talk to them. So. I
1: think nothing drives a judge more crazy than watching it, a lawyer unable to kind of do the job. Right. right. Because they want it to be an even playing field. Always, there's going to be a lawyer that can do a great job, but they don't want some a lawyer to do a bad job. Right. Right. Because that's not good for the system. So.
0: And, and I think I think that especially for younger lawyers, judges appreciate them saying, "Hey, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do it the right way, but I can't figure out what's going on. Can you help me?" And and to my, yeah, I mean, I was surprised, but looking back now, I realize the judges are just there to help you out and move the process along.
1: Now, how about the time when an, an injury client of yours ended up in jail?
0: <laughs> yeah, so th- we, I call this the uh, the trial where my client snatched defeat out of the jaws of victory. So this was up in Clayton County, and uh, there were there were two Judge benefits in Clayton County back then. They'd been married for a period of time, but they had gotten divorced. And so one was in state court, one was in superior court, and I had the female judge Benefield, who was well known for being a hanging judge—that you you crossed her, she was going to put you in jail and those sorts of things—and and so she was very by the book. Um, and so I had this case where I, was, I had a had a client, and that we had uh, that had injured his neck, and we tried the case. The case went great, and again, you know, you do closing arguments. Uh, the jury gets the case; they say they got to come back tomorrow to get the verdict. And so we leave, you know, and, and I'm talking to the bailiff. I love talking to the bailiffs always. You know, I was like, hey, what do you think? He goes, oh, you, you got get, it. You, you're going to get a big it. verdict. It's going to be yeah. a good verdict. And the so, bailiffs generally know. know. They know. I mean, yeah. They're not paying attention. They yeah. see what's they going see a on. Lot. Yeah. I mean, and I've had bailiffs before that I look at them and I'm like, what do you think? And they just kind of shake their head and go, Err. I'm like, uh-oh. Uh, so anyway, I, I go home feeling good about myself, you know, and I come back the next day and, and we're all sitting there and, and judge comes out and she goes, we got a problem. I was like, oh, hey, what's going on? She goes, uh, your client called a juror last night and I fell out of my seat onto the floor (laughs) and the judge goes, good. I was hoping that's what I'd see. I I want to know you didn't know what was going on. Yeah. I said, what, what is going on? And so the judge puts the juror up on the, on the stands and swears them in and the juror says, um, look, you know, the, the, the guy called me last night and said, are you the guy I went to church with? And I said, oh my God, yes, I am. And he goes, I thought you were. And he hung up. And that was the entire conversation. Of course, you know, my client doesn't realize there's no chance he's going to now get a a verdict because this jury has, has, he's gone outside the jury system. He's talked to the jurors. There's no way you can actually deliberate. And so we actually go outside and we settle the case. And I'm like, you know, thank God the case is settled. We come back in and we tell the judge literally says, I don't really know what to do here because I've never had a situation like this. And so after we get it settled, I said, Judge, it's 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 all taken care of. Case is settled. We don't need to worry about it. And she goes, No, I've been thinking about it. And uh I'm charging your client with felony jury tampering. And I mean he's gonna be arrested and taken out of here, and I want these jurors to see. But it. the case is so dry. I, I know. <laughs> it's, it's, So they so they literally handcuff the guy, take him out, and he goes, Oh my god, he was like call my wife, so I call his wife, and and you know, the magistrate judge throws it out after he's been in jail for two days, and then he comes back and he says he says, well, look, you know, I, I have two questions for you. One, can we undo the settlement now? And two, can I sue for for uh, uh, false, or arrest, false imprisonment? imprisonment? And I go, no and no, no, and no. no this case is Get done. Get the hell out of here. Over. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it was one of those things where I was like, oh my God. And after that, I would tell my, my, uh, my clients, I said, look, literally don't have any conversations with the jurors. Don't even be in the same elevator with them. Don't be near them. Don't let anything happen.
1: So well, that's pretty impressive to get a, a client arrested in an injury trial. So
0: it, 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 it was it was one of the one of the one of the strangest ones. I believe I probably have only. I mean, how many people out there that are lawyers have a client who's been charged with felony jury tampering? I don't. There's not. Can't be many. I think it's the population one. Exactly. Maybe one. It may only be one.
1: Another thing that's interesting in trials is jurors will ask the judges. The darnness of questions while they're deliberating, and lawyers love to look into it. Like, what does that mean? This means that we don't know. We don't know what they mean. I remember you talking about them asking. Well, you tell it. I mean, some of the calculator. Oh, it's
0: it's jury questions are the worst. All right, I have PTSD from jury questions. I literally, I will get heart palpitations when the judge says the jury has a question. So, and it all started uh, a long time ago in a case in DeKalb. I had this case where. We had, uh, my, my client was a lady who had injured her wrist, and she was a dentist, and for her it was a really big injury. And so they'd offered us like $400,000 going to trial, and we turned it down and said, no, you know, this is a million-dollar case, we're going to go to trial on it. Um, and so the, uh, the jury's out for about an hour or so, and they come back, and their first question is, if we fine for the plaintiff, do we have to award damages? And so i'm like oh lord you know my, my heart's hurting and and it was judge carrier uh who's now deceased also and it was telling you how old i am um and so judge carrier writes back and says if you find for the plaintiff you must determine the amount of damages and i was like oh, that's a great answer for us right so then the jury comes back and and, and, and while the jury's out for like 15 minutes or so when they come back the judge is talking to my clients going oh, look your lawyer put on a great case you know, do you want to talk settlement? The fish lawyer's like, no, we don't want to talk <laughs> settlement not not anymore. Judge, and and, and and he's explaining to my to my client about how good a job I did, so that when the E and O claim comes, that uh, that she you won't sue me exactly. And and but the the, the client was, was like very nice. Said this is what we wanted, we feel good with this. You know, et cetera, et cetera. So the next question comes back, and it's, is zero considered to be an award of damages? And so I said, judge, just tell him yes. Let's just get this over with. And the judge says yes.
1: Get the Band-Aid off.
0: Sends it back to the jury, and the jury, five minutes later, knocks on the door and says, we've a verdict. So I'm like, oh, my God. So the jury comes out and awards my client well over a million dollars and zero on her husband's loss of consortium. Got line. it. Okay. Uh, and the crazy part about it okay. is the defense had moved to add the husband in for loss of consortium, or you have to dismiss it because it's a four-year statute of limitations. They don't want you to win one and then and sue him do, again. Yeah. And so I said, no, nah, I'm not going to dismiss it. I'll just make them a part of the case. But I never discussed it anywhere in the opening didn't or any closing for yeah. didn't put any evidence on it. And, you know, I didn't really think about it. Now I treat lost consortium claims very seriously. Back then I didn't. Um, and, uh, and that's what they were all stuck on. And I was like, oh my God, y'all could have just told us that. So anyway, <laughs> so leaving that where I had PTSD, which was unbelievable. Uh, I was like, oh my God, I don't want to ever hear a jury question. The next trial I have is a med case. It's My last med case I've ever tried is in Athens with John hall and uh so the case goes great for us you know the, the the doctor's partner gets on the stand is the last witness and we end up being able to show that he was didn't wouldn't telling the truth on the stand so we like feel great about it and that night they're calling us asking us to do a high low after the jury's deliberated for like three or four hours and back then there was med malcaps so we're like oh we're going to bust the med malcaps on this verdict oh we don't want a high low we want to we want to hear what the jury says and and so after we come back and after an hour the jury comes back and says, uh, look, we need a calculator. We need a calculator for this. And so we're like, all right, calculator, Deal. man. You yeah. add up the damages, yeah. multiplying them out. This is great. It's working out well so for So I us. call my law partner Joe and I'm like, all right, we got him, man. Good call. We're on it. Jury comes back after three hours with a defense verdict. So I said, Oh my God, what's going on? You know, I talked to the four person, she goes, Well, look, it was eleven to one for you. And the one person said, If you bring me a calculator, I can show you that this is never malpractice. And so one of the experts had testified that there were X number of procedures a year and the complication rate was X percent. And he'd multiplied it out and said, look, that's 36,000 cases. If there were 36,000 med mal cases on this procedure a year, it'd be all in the news. So, we haven't seen it anywhere in the news, so it cannot be MedMal when this happens. Damn,
1: true. And juror. the 11 jurors came over and they were like, I said, Oh, no, no, no. It's yeah. crazy. So, be, that guy needs to be ex, an expert witness in these
0: cases. Oh, it, it was nuts, you know. So, and then that, that was literally the mat, last MedMal. I said, I'm not doing MedMal anymore. Not this right. is ridiculous, uh, you know. And then they all, and then of course, they also said that the, the doctor looked like a nice guy and, you know, they felt bad for him. And Athens was a pretty conservative venue back then. Uh, but still, you know, you, you, so after. Those two jury questions, where I went from one way to the other, I started having, I literally, I, I couldn't even sit through jury deliberations. i go walk around oh, outside yeah. or do anything.
1: Yeah, that, I mean, that is just the, the heart beating. And then they say jury has a verdict. I mean, just sitting there and just, it's, it's crazy. Um, okay, another quick story or two about closing arguments and the way that you approach them. We didn't really talk about that, but I can think of two very unique closing arguments that you gave one of them, um, a movie that we all know, Usual Suspects. Oh, yeah. So right? That, so so that talk, talk, talk about, you know, talk about, number one, being creative in, in going about a closing argument. Because look, that's what everybody vision, in, envisions is like the sexy part of the trial. Right. right? The that's what you hear argument. on TV. That's what you... What, what, I, what I tell
0: people is cases are, one, an opening statement. All right? Whether you're going to recover or not recover, that's opening statement. The amount can be changed in closing arguments. And so closing arguments gives you the chance to really empower the jury and to make them, allow them to give the money that you want to give. Uh, and so it's, it's very powerful for that part of it. Now, what uh, a lot of people don't know is I love movies. I watch every movie, I watch movies all the time. Like I said, I watched The Verdict 20 times in a row. Um, and one of my favorite movies is The Usual Suspects. And so we had a case where it's a pilot gas station and it was a nugget security case where a guy had been assaulted at a pilot gas station um, and they had their, their Uh, corporate representative pilots based out of Tennessee had come up from Tennessee for the trial and his lawyer in opening statement gets up there and says, now look, you know, before you make your decision in this case, wait till we put on our evidence, you know, it's kind of like that movie, the usual suspects where, uh, you know, you don't know what's going to happen to the very end. So don't just think you've heard the plaintiff's case and make your decision before you hear our case, because it may be different than what you think. So I'm sitting there. I'm like, usual
1: Suspects I'm going to use like, it against oh, this man. joker. This guy's the, the great- wrong dude. No, I
0: was like, it is the greatest thing ever. I was yeah. like, the usual Suspects I'm, I'm just waiting for closing arguments. Yeah. So we get to closing arguments, and uh, and so I said, now, look, you know, uh, they brought up usual suspects in opening statement. That's that's one of my favorite movies. And I said, here's what happens, and I really literally act out the whole thing. I'm like, there's a guy. You know, Kevin Spacey plays this guy. He's this meat guy who, you know, is 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 it looks like he couldn't harm a fly and he seems pathetic, and you know all this. These all these people have, have died, and they're trying to figure out, you know, who did it, and they're trying to figure out who Kaiser Sose is. And then, you know, I'm literally like walking with a limp and everything else. And then I talk about how that they let him leave the police station, and all of a sudden he stands up and walks out. I mean, I'm literally it's 20 minutes going through the movie. I mean. Playing and the you're whole movie, I'm loving I every mean, minute of it, and, 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 and it's uh, and it's Judge Mather, and Judge Mather. Later, uh, later, people tell me that Judge Mather's just sitting up there going, "Oh my sure, God, oh this my is God. awesome!" Yeah, yeah, And so then I go, I go, if you don't give us a big verdict in this case, I go that guy over there, he and his lawyer are going to get in the car, took his cigarette out, drive, drive all the way off, back to laugh, Tennessee, laugh, laughing all the way. way, and and the jury just they hammered, loved
1: them, it. hammered they them, loved it, hammered they loved it. So um, was that a case where you had the last? Uh, argument Final clarity, okay yeah. will i would i would love to have heard what uh what they could have said in rebuttal oh, there was no, Instead no, he's it, just sitting there he's like oh god i know it was oh, I mean, god.
0: but it was it was just it was a great setup and one of the things i tell people in trial is listen listen to both the witnesses and to the you know to the other lawyer what they say they give you gems all the time that you can use in your case and you just have to be ready to kind of pivot and use them and incorporate them into what
1: you're going to say right. That's good stuff. Well, I appreciate you sharing all those stories and we could talk about them, you know, for, forever. But uh, the last law question I want to ask you is, you know, the, your demeanor and, and kind of like your uh, just approach to all of this. I mean, you, you run a big you know, run a law firm, you're handling high cases, you're in and out of courtrooms, but like your, your attitude and demeanor, to me at least, always looks very, very the same. Very cool, very calm, very collected. Um, is that just who you are? Is that just what you found to be the better way of going about it? Do you have swings
0: <laughs> yeah you know, that's that's the thing I, My wife could tell you I have some swings every every so often where uh, where i can I can get angry um, but you know I try not let things bother me too much. I mean in the grand scope of things, you're sort of like you know there's things you can change there's things you can't change as you as you get older, obviously you realize that that um things that you thought were so important, suddenly don't seem that important. Uh, and I just think in general, you just need to be a good person. I mean, be a nice guy, enjoy yourself. You know, there, there's so many worse jobs you can be doing. There's so many worse things you can be doing. Uh, and just take a, take a step back and, and enjoy it. And so I've always just enjoyed it. I mean, I, I, I feel like I was chosen to be a lawyer. My, my dad sort of made me a lawyer early on. Um, but it was the right profession for me. And I enjoy getting up in the morning, going to work. I enjoy, you know, talking with people and and, and hanging out with people and talking about the law and what's going on and those sorts of things. Uh, And I always tell people, if you don't like what you're doing, there's a job out there for you. You just gotta be brave enough to do it. Now I will tell you the the best story of of the insurance defense firm, which is sometimes it's chosen for you. So when when I was at insurance defense firm, we were moving buildings, and in the new building, there was uh, every person had an office, and their name was on the office. And as I was looking through the offices, I didn't see my name on it. And I went to the partners, and I was like, "Hey, I don't see my name on this. Am I going with y'all to the next office?" Uh, missing and, one here, guys. And they all said, "We don't know." You know, but they basically wouldn't answer my question. And I realized if I stayed, I was probably getting fired anyway. Okay, so, there so you go. they forced me to become into a profession that now I love. And had I not, had it not happened, who knows where I would be, but it's the same thing when, when you're looking at doing that yourself. I mean, I already knew that I was going to do plaintiff's work at some point because I'd made that decision when I was working there, but they forced me into that decision early. Um, a lot of people just have the fear of doing it, of, of making a change. But if you're not happy with what you're doing in the law or anywhere else, Go to something else, try it and see. There's something out there for you. And I tell people, keep looking, you'll find it.
1: Yeah, don't be stuck doing, being miserable, doing something you don't want to do forever. Make the change. There's never the perfect time to do it. You got to just do it. That's there, what I tell there people. There never is. You can always find an excuse why, well, I can't do it now. My son's this age, my daughter's this age, I got this out. Like there's always going to be something. So, very good stuff. I appreciate all of that, man. Thank you. Uh, I learned a ton. I know everybody else will, will, will love listening to you and, and listen to this. i got to get some Georgia football and Braves stuff from you, though. Sure, sounds good. So we're going to go a little over the hour, but oh, I'm, why adj- not? I'm enjoying it. Sure. So, you know, people I, don't want to listen.
0: I, I've got great goose. We can go as long yeah, as you want. Yeah, if
1: people don't want to listen, then that's on them. Um, we're both double champs, Georgia Bulldogs, Atlanta Braves, greatest sports year ever. Both teams are kicking ass this year, too. So my simple question is, Give me the tail of the tape of looking forward to the next couple of months, like where the Braves are going to do, what Georgia is going to do. He's got a better chance of repeating. we in for a double repeat. What do we got?
0: You know, I, I think you're going to have two great years. You're going to have two great years from both teams. Uh, I think they're going to go further than people thought they would go. I don't, I don't truly, in my heart of hearts, believe you the one will repeat. But I believe both of them will play for it. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, I think Georgia – is going to have a, a another great battle with Alabama, but man, you know, I, I've heard that Alabama had on their cafeteria the the runner-up trophy from the national championship with a sign that says, "Who wants a participation trophy?" <laughs> All right, and they've been looking at that ever since you know the that. national championship. It's, it's been sitting there it's in been the cafeteria. drilling in their brains. And 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 so I just have this feeling that that it's going to be an epic game we may fall a little short god i hope we don't i hope we do if we do it again it'd be the greatest thing ever um and then with the braves i think the braves are a great team i think the braves will will uh will win the east i think that the mets are going to falter like they always do knock on wood uh and i think that that we'll have a finale with the dodgers and freddie freeman will come to town and it's going to be a great game uh it's going to be a great series it's going to be a lot of fun um but again you know back to back is just so hard so hard it's it, so it, it, it 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 is i mean even even saving can do it, it can't do it i mean it, it's nuts how hard it is um so I, I i i'm realistic but the beauty of it is for the first time in my life i go into a season not caring whether we win or lose i know i go into a
1: season appreciative of what i've got and just enjoying. So it. I've, I've been saying that too. But now that it's like started, now that it's a playoff push, and now that Georgia's playing again, I'm greedy. I want it again.
0: No, I'm not, I'm I not, want saying, it again. I'm not saying I'm not greedy. But, but I feel like, I, you know, unfortunately, I think it's what happens when you win the national championship is why it's so hard to repeat is that you just feel good. Feel good. I mean, you go in and you're like, you know what, it's all right.
1: And so the birds are chirping a little better sometimes. What like I underestimated that. was, and we, we were together in, in um, Indianapolis, that felt great. But the ten months, twelve months since—not that's not, it's not that long. Was it been nine months? Have felt even better. I mean, buying all the gear, reading everything online. Brian Karen invited me to a viewing yesterday, where we got to see both the championship trophies, Braves, you know, and UGA. Like going to do that kind of stuff. Like I underestimated just how awesome, you know, the months after were going to be. Oh, the unexpected nature
0: of both the Braves and the Dogs is unbelievable. I mean, it's just you—you you didn't expect it. And when it happened, at the time it occurred, you're like, this is one of the greatest things ever. And then, you know, it happens again in Indianapolis. And you're like, oh my God, it's, it's still going, you still know, going. you're like this is this, what, what, what could be better than this? And you've just sort of gone through like now just sort of relaxing, feeling great about it, feeling enjoying great. it. And now you're back and you're like, okay, we're back in the season. But I'm like, if we win, I'll be on the top, I'll be on, you know, cloud nine, whatever. But I'm all right with that, too. And, again, that's the problem why it's so hard to repeat is that those are the feelings, obviously, the players are going to have some of those, too. And no matter how hungry you are, just to to have the hunger like that is something different.
1: It's hard. It's hard. So I think Georgia Georgia has a – I'm sure the betters agree. I mean, they've got the better chance of repeating. I think that's a two-team race in college football. I mean, Ohio State might prove me wrong, but I think it's Georgia and Alabama. Um, I think that we will play them again in L.A. I think we'll probably play them in Atlanta and play them again. Same same thing. I don't know how it's going to go, but we'll all be there, I'm sure, you know, hanging out. You know, there, there,
0: there's, some, there's some part of me that feels like what happens is we beat Alabama in the SEC championship and they get us in the national it flips. championship. It flips. Yeah, it and flips. I just – I don't know why. It just feels like that. Um, and if it happens, it'll still be the greatest thing ever. Uh, and, uh, of course, the other thing too is the reason that I knew we were going to win the national championship is – Indianapolis is the shittiest place to win a national championship. And that's very Georgia. And so Georgia was there. That's so very that, that's how I knew it was going to be. Yeah, L. A. is not a destination for a- a- us. Exactly. So that's how you know.
1: Well, it's going to be awesome. And the, the Braves are absolutely loaded this year. I think they're. I think they have a better team this year than last. They'll win more games in the regular season, it's just so hard to go through that gauntlet in the playoffs two years in a row. Well, there, again, baseball is is so streaky,
0: and and you know there's so much where, you know, it's who gets hot, and and are the pitchers hot? So if the pitchers can stay hot and keep you in the game, you're fine. I mean, we've got, you know, two of the top three pitchers, and as long as they're pitching well and you don't have the injuries and you get a little hitting, anything's possible. But, again, it's just so hard to repeat because at some point, there's a team out there
1: that wants it just a little bit more because they haven't had it, and you've had it. The idea of sitting in – Truest part with Freddie Freeman up to bat with the game on the line, oh, it's, terrifies it, 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 it's me to no end.
0: It's mine because you
1: know going to come through and get it's the gonna hit. It yeah, it's going gonna to happen. It is going to
0: happen. I mean, there's there is there is there is again some part of me that believes that Georgia beats Alabama in the SC championship, loses in the national championship. There's some part of me that believes that Freddie Freeman hits a home run in Game Seven to for for Los Angeles to beat Atlanta. And that's how it goes. And if it happens that way, so be it. I still feel great. I still feel great
1: because we had it this year. I just hope you're wrong.
0: Yeah. We, we all do. We all do. Wrong.
1: But, hey, the, the eternal pessimist is the best you can do. Yeah, so. I know it is. Listen, man, this was great. I, I appreciate you stopping by. It a fun conversation. It would be anything else you want to add, sports, about the law, anything that we didn't touch that you you feel is important to bring up, or we, we covered all no, of this? No, out? no, no,
0: you, you, you covered all the bases. You covered all the bases. I mean, like I said, it's, it's been a it, it's been a great sports year. I mean, it's sort of split between two years, but it's been a great sports year. Uh, you know, it's, it's just it, it's fun. It's fun to watch. All these teams do well and out there playing and, and having fun. And, you know, it's, again, it's sort of like that with the law, too. It's good to see all these young lawyers doing well and all these young lawyers getting big verdicts. And uh, I hope all of them do well. So. Absolutely. Uh, we, do we ever mention your firm name and website? Go ahead. <laughs> no, no. My law partner is Joe Freed. So it's Freed Goldberg, his name of the law firm. Um, and like I said, we've been doing trucking
1: cases more, more than anything else. And, and the website is, is, is FreedGoldberg.com. FreedGoldberg.com. Oh, there great. you go. All right. Check them out. All right, everybody. Well, Michael, thank you for coming. This is a good time. Everybody, thank you for listening. Again, you can find us on sportsandtorts.com. Search around the socials. You can find it. Uh, we'll try to make things interesting during the week, pump things out. So, as always, thank you all for listening. Tell a friend. Uh, as they say, like, comment, and subscribe. And until next time, keep chopping.